Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So, I just sense uh, from the room that everybody's just a little bit happier than they were last week. I don't know if that's the weather or... If you're all getting over that that ridiculously difficult bug that's been uh, plaguing us or what, but uh, it's nice to see. It's good to good to be here with you this morning, and, and uh, yeah. So um, yeah, the, um, the the picture uh, from the kids' curriculum was uh, uh, Moses commissioning Joshua. Uh, preparing for his own departure and and uh, preparing the people for the entrance into the promised land and and uh, that's uh, that's where we're at today. We're on a three-year journey through the Bible <coughs> and uh, we're making progress, so it's good. Uh, we're, we're we're actually working on a a bit of a timeline uh, video to help us kind of see our progress and chart our progress through the Bible, but uh, that's a quite an undertaking. And uh, hopefully, if we had been really on the ball, we would have done that last year at this time. But we never, just never really thought of it. Hi, Tim. How you doing, man? Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know where we're, I don't know what our status is on that. But anyways, um, this morning, uh, we are with Israel in the wilderness, and this will be the last Time will be with them in the wilderness because next week, as I mentioned, uh, they're going to they're going to be going in. Doug Doug Campbell's going to take take them in. Uh, well, Joshua maybe take them in. Doug's just going to comment. He's just going to be the commentator on that. Uh, uh, so uh, um, last week, uh, Israel defeated uh, Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of the Bashan, of uh, Bashan. I thought that was a nice, neat name, Og. You know, short, nice, easy to spell, easy to say. Og, O G. If you're thinking, you know, if you're expecting, you want to use that, it uh, it could be good. And I can almost guarantee you that nobody else, nobody else's kid will have the same name as your kid, which seems to be a popular thing these days. So that's good. Uh, those names, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan are actually fairly significant biblical names. Uh, now, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 135, okay? I'm going to read a few verses there. Listen to what uh, the psalmist says there. It says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. That's a, a direct quote from Deuteronomy 7.6, okay? Then verse 5 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he uh, it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both a man and a beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down the many nations and killed the mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bishan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. And you can cross-reference that. That's Psalm 135, verses 3 to 6 and 8 to 12. You can cross-reference that with Numbers 21, 
uh, 21 to 26 and 31 to 35. And then in Numbers, that's so basically Numbers 21. Then in Numbers 22, we read last week how uh, Balak, the king of the Moabites, sent for this guy named Balaam. And before it was all over, Israel had gotten themselves in more trouble than anyone would even want to think about. Scripture says that they prostituted themselves. That's the phrase that gets used. Uh, and 24,000 people died as a result. God had protected Israel from the curse of Balaam, that he, the, Balak, that he tried to get Balaam to bring on the people, but then the people turned around and brought a curse on themselves, and 24,000 people died as a result. And so that's all important history, because we're talking about a, a period in history when Israel hasn't even entered the land yet. They're just getting ready to enter the land, and already they are uh, worshiping Baal. Baal is the principal deity of the Canaanites. And uh, I thought this might be a good time for just to, to, to make uh, mention, and, and I got uh, some uh, things from Encyclopedia Britannica. I, uh, I thought, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot about this Baal as you go through the Old Testament. As the people get into the land, uh, Baal's name is going to come up again and again and again. So who is Baal? So according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Baal was a god worshipped in many ancient Middle Eastern communities, especially among the Canaanites, who apparently considered him a fertility deity. And that's important. He was a fertility deity. So if you worship Baal, you would expect not only that your crops would grow, but that you're, you would have lots of wonderful children none of whom you would name Og, uh, in all seriousness. Um, let me see here. He's one of the most important gods in the pantheon. That would be the, the group of gods of the people of, uh, of the land of Canaan. As a Semitic common noun, Baal uh, meant owner or lord. Now remember the people of Israel were instructed that you have one lord, one god, right? who is Yahweh. Uh, although it could be used more generally, for example, a bale of wings was a winged creature, and in the plural, balim of arrows indicated archers, yet such fluidity in use of the term bale did not prevent it from being attached to the god of distinct character. As such, Baal designated the universal uh, god of fertility, and in his, that capacity, his title was prince, lord of the earth. He was called the Lord of Rain and Dew, uh, the two forms of moisture that were indispensable for fertile soil in Canaan. In uh, Ugaritic and in Hebrew, I don't know what Ugaritic is. Anyways, and in Hebrew, uh, his epitaph as the storm god was he who rides on the clouds. Uh, which is interesting. In Phoenician, he was called Baal Shaman, Lord of the Heavens. So we are going to be hearing more, more about Baal as uh, over the next course, the next many, many months. He's going to come up again and again. But I want to just reflect you back. Take a look at Numbers 25, verse 3. We'll put it on the screen. This is what happened in Numbers chapter 25, immediately after the incident with uh, Balaam, we're told there, Israel yoked himself 
to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So this is the incident where 25,000 people died. But notice the terminology here. It says that Israel yoked himself uh, to Baal. Um, in the material that we're, we're covering, and this is really important, uh, the relationship that Israel had as a people with God is, very, is depicted very much like a marriage. It was a solemn covenant that the people entered. Remember Mount Sinai, you know, back a little over a month ago when we were talking about God uh, presenting himself to the people and presenting his law to the people and the people all stood together and it says that every one of them all together said everything the Lord will do, we uh, says we will do. It's just, it was saying, say, I do. It's that same idea. It's a solemn covenant of relationship where the people agreed to have that relationship with that type of relationship with God. And so here in Numbers 25, it says that the people yoked themselves with Baal, which would be like yoking God with Baal. And as I was thinking about these things and reading through here, it occurred to me that we um, have a hard time sometimes appreciating why, if there is a God, would he be angry? Why would God ever be angry? Is, is the idea or the concept of an angry God somehow an illegitimate idea? Because for many people, it is. It's like, you want me to believe in God? Uh, okay, maybe, but I don't want to believe in the, an angry God. And why is that? It's because, well, why would, why would God be angry? What would ever make God angry? Well, let me ask you a question. If you grew up, and, and, and when you were, say, maybe 21 years old, you met this uh, beautiful guy or girl, depending on your gender, Obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> and you fell in love with her or him, and you were married. You went through months of serious courtship, getting to know one another, uh, really kind of getting a sense, are, are, we, are we supposed to be together or, or not? And, and are we going to be good together? And, and more, most importantly, are you going to be faithful to me? Can I count on you to be faithful to me? And it's yes, yes, yes. Wow, this is the most amazing thing ever. And then you get married 12 months down the road. And then uh, a few months later, you come home. And there's your loved one in bed with somebody else. Would you be angry? I don't even know if you, some of you might be able to relate better than others of how that would feel. I don't even, I can't even begin to think about what that would feel like. I have a hard time putting myself in the place of a person, and I know that that's not an uncommon thing. You know that too, right? Like that is not a scenario that's somehow kind of hypothetical. That happens every single day in this world. And somehow we have this idea that God shouldn't be 
angry. Even though, if we really read the story for what it is, God had every right to be angry. Not only that, but let's just flip ahead to verse 6 of that same chapter. And this is all important as we come into the book of Deuteronomy today. And I need to speed up a little bit here. Numbers 25 verse 6. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. You can read that through there. It's uh, Numbers chapter 25. But I, I want you to think about this again while we're thinking together about what, this, what was really happening here and what this was like. Try to get the p- picture. So the picture is this. The, uh, the people have yoked themselves to Baal Peor and they're, and they're uh, uh, you know, living out the, the implications of that. They're living uh, and practicing and doing the things that go with false worship or false beliefs. And uh, it's just kind of like a, a massive circus of sin. And, and, and God is judging the people because, I mean, they got to know, right? Because God has been very clear and upfront with them that this, this was what would happen. You know, you're going to be judged. You can't just do whatever you want and not have the consequences for it. And so he's been very upfront with them about that. And, 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 but here they are. And so, so God is judging them. I, you know, I mean, there's a plague on the people. And the people are all, are all, the leaders are all at the front of the tent of the tabernacle there. And all the people there. And they're weeping. Because it's bad. The consequences are, are painful. They're, they're devastatingly painful. And all of a sudden, this guy, he's not even named. We don't know who he is. But this guy walks in dragging this, uh, this young Midianite woman and takes her. And they're, and they're all like, and he goes and takes her to his tent where all his family is. His wife and children are there. And he takes her inside and they start to engage in sexual intercourse inside of the tent. You kind of think, that there should be a law against that. We live in such a permissive age, see? Ah, you say it's right, I say it's wrong. Maybe it's right for you and wrong for me, or wrong for me, right for you. You know, you know can't we just agree that we all can just should live our own lives? And, and, and you know, this whole idea of morality, like, let's just, that's a kind of antiquated idea, isn't it? So old-fashioned. Let's just get rid of that and, so that we can be free and happy. How happy do you think that woman was, that wife? How happy do you think those kids were? We don't even know, but where, where was this guy's parents? They could have been in the tent too. That, I'm not being facetious here. That's how they lived, right? It says that he, he brought her in in front of his family. That's what the text says. What would you do? Would you be upset? So try to get the picture of what's going on here, okay? It's not a pretty picture. But 
I would say this. I would ask, in the form of a question, can we understand the Bible without understanding God's anger and his wrath? And I would say to you, absolutely not. God is angry at sin. And in, and in part, the reason that God is angry at sin is because sin devastates people's lives. I wish we could get that. Because if we could get that, we would start to understand that it's not our culture that is, has it figured out when they write the whole idea of God and morality off. They are <laughs> confused, to say the least. And all of this is directly related to where we're going today, to be talking about today. Uh, because Israel, before they even took possession of the land, God had warned them and God had told them of the day that would come when they would forsake him and give themselves over to idolatry and all that goes along with idolatry. Let's not forget the things that go with false worship or false beliefs. Um, today's text is a, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. So today, in the next uh, uh, 40 minutes, we're going to study the book of Deuteronomy. <coughs> we're going to focus mostly on the, um, the latter part of it, but I do want to uh, start at the beginning and get a little bit of, of uh, context going. I hope that you're studying this outside of Sunday mornings, and uh, I know some of our groups are, which is tremendous, but uh, that would be important to do that. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Topol, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kardash Barnea, uh, or Barnea, maybe, I don't know. In the 14th year, 40th year, thank you, that would be an important fact. 40th year, okay, what does that tell you? They've been in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? The whole generation, we, we covered that. Generation is passing off the scene, new generation. It is 11 uh, days journey, verse 3 is 40th year. On the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him commandment to them. After he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashroth and in Adri. Okay? Context. Right? Chapter 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. He knows it all. He's been there for the whole thing. These 40 years the Lord God has been with you. And what? You have lacked nothing. See, there's that, there's that goodness. In spite of all of the grumbling and complaining and the lack of faith, God took care of them. He provided for them. That's his goodness. Deuteronomy um, uh, goes on to tell us <laughs> that uh, um, a lot of the things, some of the, re, re, uh, reiterates some of the uh, incidents from um, the 40 years. Similar covers, saw some of the similar material to the book of Numbers. Some of the stories are the same, but there are a few things that are uh, 
um, you know, kind of highlighted. One of the things in the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses, uh, it shows us that Moses really, you know, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land, and that really bothered him, and he, you know, that, but he blamed the people for that. Uh, I think I, we mentioned, I mentioned this before, but it, it shows up. Deuteronomy 1, verse 37, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there. Notice it says, even with me, even with me, Moses, uh, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there. Uh, chapter 3, verse 23 to 29. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. But what God is there in heaven and on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Um, you know, it's like, God, don't, don't stop it now. I mean, all this time, and we're just getting ready to go into the promised land. You know, I got to go in, Lord. I got to go in. And God, you know, verse 25, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan and the good hill country of Lebanon. You know, the, the land our fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob walked through, and you said every place where the sole of your foot touches, it will be yours someday. Oh, God, please, I, I, I got to see that. But the Lord, verse 26, was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go on the top of Mount Pisgah. Lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. Go up to the top of Pisgah uh, eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua. Again, this is Deuteronomy 3, verse 28. Charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of his, his people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Uh, when we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, this is what we see. Moses goes up to Mount Pisgah and looks and sees, but he can't enter. Uh, he brings it up again. Moses brings it up again uh, <laughs> not with the Lord, because the Lord said, that's enough. Don't, don't talk to me about it again. But he does bring it up to the people. In chapter 4, uh, he says, the Lord was angry, angry with me because of you. <laughs> uh, we could spend some time on that, but we're, uh, you know, we, we won't. But I, I, just, I did want to point it out. It's part of, the, part of Moses' story. Um, some other material in the book of Deuteronomy that stands out in terms of, the, you know, it's not included other, in other places. Um, Deuteronomy uh, makes reference to the time when the people of Israel in the land would identify a specific place where God's name would dwell. And that place would become known as where? Pardon? Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's not named here. Um... Uh, it also, uh, that's in chapter 12, by the way. Um, in chapter 17, we have, uh, or sorry, that was, uh, uh, in chapter 12, we have the laws of, uh, for the king. Laws for the king. When you uh, choose a king, this is how, what he should be like. Uh, that's interesting. That's chapter 17. Um, chapter 18 contains what, what I, th I think are the first messianic references to the prophet like Moses. I I could be wrong on this because I never, I never verified this. I should, probably should have. But I think it's the first ref, messi, references to the prophet, capital P, prophet, like Moses, which is a messianic prophecy. Let's just take a quick look. Deuteronomy 18, verses 13 
to 22. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Remember Balaam? Last Sunday? Okay, he was a fortune teller, a diviner, and which was an abomination to the Lord. And by the way, Balaam is in Scripture a type of antichrist. Okay, he was uh, uh, a prophet, uh, not unlike the prophet, but he was anti uh, the prophet. Uh, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day uh, the assemb of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes, presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it uh, presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Do you remember those instances in the New Testament where Jesus would say something along the lines like this, I only speak the words my Father has given me to speak? You read the New Testament, we're, we're way in the Old Testament, but you read the New Testament, you read Jesus saying those things. In fact, uh, let me read these words to you. This is from John chapter 12. Jesus cried out in a loud voice and he said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his, this, his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, because Jesus is the prophet. He is the personification of all that the, the other legitimate prophets point to and the anti-prophets or anti-Christs uh, are the antithesis to. So that's in Deuteronomy. That's, that's significant. But going back <coughs> to Deuteronomy and focusing on the last uh, five chapters or so, Deuteronomy 27. Um, again, picking up uh, some things here. Um, something I hadn't noticed before. Uh, I, I was reading through and studying through and, and I noticed something I hadn't picked up on before and maybe that's happening to you. I hope that's happening to you as you study the Bible because you can study the Bible uh, for a thousand years and still 
stuff in there that you didn't pick up on, right? It's an inexhaustible book written by an infinite God. Um, but uh, one of the things that I, I hadn't picked up on is that Deuteronomy, again, keep in mind, okay, keep thinking context here, we're at the end of the wilderness journeys. Forty years, okay, have passed. A new generation has raised up, uh, has, been, has uh, yeah, whatever, grown up. And uh, also, uh, although Moses was not allowed to go into the land, he uh, had uh, enjoyed some pretty significant leadership training and leadership development success. And I, when I saw this, I thought, That's, this is interesting. Deuteronomy 27 verse 1 says, And Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. It's, it would appear from this text and the text that follows that Moses had been able to accomplish some significant leadership development, um, not just with regard to the elders of Israel, but if you cast your eyes down to verse 20, or sorry, uh, just chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, it says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. So here you also have the, the priests. Now this is not Aaron, because Aaron's dead. Okay? So this is a new generation of leaders. And, uh, and, and that doesn't, uh, you know... Uh, you know, Joshua and Caleb are obviously part of that, that great number as well. But I thought that was uh, significant. The emphasis in Deuteronomy is on the covenant. The covenant that God made with them as a people. Uh, the last major section, like I say, it covers some of the material that, you know, numbers covers and so on. But uh, reflecting back, Moses is reflecting back now. He's saying, you know, these things have, have happened, Okay. But now here we are today, and uh, in the last half of the, uh, of the book of Deuteronomy, <coughs> excuse me, the last major section <clears throat> deals with uh, the whole idea of the covenant. Um, uh, and the reason for that is because this is a new generation. These people would not have been of responsible age when it, God had made his covenant with them at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they could not ride on the coattails of their parents. And so what we have is a renewing of the, mar of the marriage, uh, whatever, of the covenant. And uh, it's very instructional in nature. So you'll read all these passages in Deuteronomy about children. In fact, when we have child dedication times, we almost always read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Almost always where it says there that you know, they were not only to obey these things, but teach them to your children. And that phrase occurs over and over again. There's also uh, re the recurring phrases. Recurring phrases are important. This is one of the phrases that occur recurs in the book of Deuteronomy. So that you may live. Uh, another, uh, another one is for your good. Not just for your good, but for the good of your children. Well, that's pretty significant. 
for your good. God cares about what's good for you. Just like our parents care about what's good for us. Another uh, recurring phrase is very similar is um, so that it may go well with you. So that it may go well with you in the land. That you may dwell in the land. A couple of examples. Deuteronomy 4. Verse 39 and 40. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep these statutes and commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord God is giving you for all time. That phrase for all time, by the way, is really important too. Uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 33. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. See, three things there, right? That you may live, and that you may go, that it may go well with you. That's not live, I, I know we've talked about it. that's not just survive, that's living. That's life. That you may have life and that it may go well with you and that you may dwell long in the land that you shall possess. So notice here that their well-being and their very lives and their well-being and their dwelling in the land is all contingent on their worship of God alone and their willingness to follow him. And it's amazing to me how we in general as people get this notion in our minds, somehow we figure this, that we can ignore or dismiss God, that we can live any way we want, and yet somehow we maintain this expectation that we're going to have life, that we're going to do well, that we're going to be happy, and, and, uh, and it's going to be good. We have this idea, and it's because we have this, you know, this tendency to, to want to dismiss morality and dismiss the whole concept of doing right and wrong, but we want to experience the, the consequences of, of doing right because we want our lives to be good. I've never met anybody in my life that didn't ex want their lives to be good. We all want the good life, right? We all want the good life. <coughs> Chapter um, 27 is where we're going to uh, slow down a little bit and look at these last sections. And obviously we can't study five chapters in the next 20 minutes or so, but, but uh, this is where we really see... Um, the renewing of the covenant with this new generation. So in chapter 27, 
God instructs uh, the people through Moses that uh, when they go into the promised land, they are to take and set up stones and make an altar on Mount Ebal. And the stones, are, which once they had the altar set up, they were to inscribe on the stones the law or laws that he had given them. How to live good in order to experience life. And then he said, and I, and I want six of the tribes, there's 12 tribes, six of the tribes to stand on Mount Ebal, or in front of Mount Ebal, more likely. And I want the other six tribes, and if you read down through chapter 27 there, you'll see he names the six tribes and the other six tribes. But the other six tribes were standing in front of Mount Gerizim. And uh, the... They were to, uh, <coughs> the priests with the Ark of the Covenant, which the, uh, the laws, uh, the writings of Moses, were placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the people were to shout back and forth at each other. And... Uh, the six tribes uh, on Mount Gerizim were to... Well, let's bring up uh, a couple of pictures here just so that we can... Uh, what do do with the pointer there? Let's just put this... Okay, so here, um, uh, they, the people are, are down here <coughs> in this area right here, okay? Um, and when they entered the land, uh, this area right here is where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim would be, all right? So that's the, that's the kind of in the center of the promised land, I guess you would say. And so the, um, the, the Mount, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, we have, I have a picture of, Mount, uh, uh, of those two mounts. And in, in the biblical days, uh, Shechem would have been in between. Uh, it's modern day uh, uh, Nablus. And you can see there the two mountains that are re referenced Oh, they're, they're called mountains. They might look, you might look at that and say it's more like a hill. Well, whatever, right? But, but uh, so here you have uh, Mount Gerizim, and there's Mount Ebal. So six tribes were supposed to stand here, and the other six tribes were supposed to stand here, and the, and the priests would be in the middle with the, with the Ark of the Covenant, and they would shout back and forth to each other blessings and cursings. The six tribes on Mount uh, Gerizim were to shout uh, blessings, and the six tribes on Mount Ebal were to shout back curses in response. Now, you said, <laughs> maybe you didn't even know this was in the Bible, you know, because we would be a little bit probably upset if our kids started shouting curses at somebody, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? So why would they do this? Well, the passage goes on to say that the priests also had a specific role here as well, because God get, and the Levites, because God gives them uh, uh, twelve uh, curses to that they're supposed to shout at the people, 
And the people had to respond, amen, when they showed the, the, these curses. So the, so the, the priests would all, they, they, can you picture this? Like, can you picture this? They're, 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 they're shouting these things at each other. And, and so the priests would shout out the curse, and the people would have to say, amen, amen. Kind of like just a, like a really good southern gospel church, you know, with lots of amens going on, right? But, but what's really interesting is these curses are so, they're, they're interesting. Now, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but I want to read them to you. I'm going to give you a condensed version, okay? So here are the 12. There's 12 curses. One for each tribe, maybe. Uh, and here they are from Deuteronomy 27. It says, starting out, number one, Cursed is the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. That's an idol. Okay? So cursed is the man who worships other gods, who worships false idols. That's number one. Uh, number two and following Anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, anyone who perverts the justice due, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, anyone who lies with his father's wife, anyone who lies with any kind of animal, anyone who lies with his sister, anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, Anyone who strikes down his neighbor, anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Those are the 12 curses that the priests would shout out at the people, and the people would say, Amen to that. Interesting, eh? Quite a list. What kind of a society was God trying to build? A moral, upright society. A good society. Think about it. Then chapter 28 is split in half. It's two parts. The first part is a whole bunch of blessings. They're called blessings. And what they are is they are consequences for the obedience. So it's like, you know, if you do what the Lord is telling you to do and you obey him, this is what you can expect. And you can read through there, and some, it's, it's all kinds of wonderful stuff. Like, you know, your, your crops will do well, and, and your, your, your animals will do well, and your families will do well, and there'll be rain in the season, and your enemies won't be able to, you know, to come in and attack you. And, you know, <laughs> going forward from here through the rest of the Old Testament, their enemies are always attacking them. It doesn't matter what you talk about the book of Judges. You go up through the kings and David and Goliath, down through to Daniel, all the way through. Their enemies all around them, all the time. But God says, if you follow me, if you worship me alone, if you don't worship other gods, if you do what you're, what, what you're being told to do, you know, you won't have to worry about that. I'm going to take care of you. And he lists them. It goes on and on and on. But then the last half of chapter 28 has all these cursings, which are consequences if, you, if they didn't do. If you don't do what the Lord is telling you to do, then this is what it's going to be like. This is what you're going to ex- be expect. It's, it's like all these curses. It's like, you know, your crops are going to fail, and, you know, and, and, and it just goes on and on and on. And it's a whole list. And you can read them there. I would encourage you to read them. Um, and if you've read them, 
Read them through again because it's really good. Now, a couple of observations. Number one, it's amazing um, the number of references uh, throughout the prophets to these texts. If you, if you want to um, understand books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Isaiah, Jeremiah, study Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, and 30. Because there are thousands of references in those prophets to those scriptures. And, and it's interesting because one of, you know, we, we envision the prophets as these men who go out in the wilderness, stand out and go, okay, God, tell me something. Tell me something to tell the people. It wasn't like that at all. Do you know what the prophets did most? They read what God had said. You know, you say, you know, these prophets like Elijah and Elisha, you know, they were, it was amazing. They just, they just knew stuff. They knew stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't supernatural. I'm not saying that they weren't, that God didn't speak to them. But most of their information came from these passages because God said, if you don't obey, this is what's going to happen. And so the prophets would stand and they would look at Jerusalem and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Man, I know what's going to happen next. And then it would say, you know, your enemies are going to come in. They're going to, they're going to carry off your women and children. You're going to have plagues on your crops. And so if you read through the prophets, read through these sections. It's amazing. That's one thing. That's a very important, and I'm grateful to a man named Ken Ginter for pointing that out to me uh, many years ago when I was taking courses in Bible school on the minor prophets. He actually had us go through the Minor Prophets and read through. We had to mark every single reference in the Minor Prophets to Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30 and Leviticus chapter 26, which is the same blessing and cursing um, material. Anyways, that's, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that the, the list of curses is, is longer than the, uh, the, section, uh, the section dealing with curses is way longer, probably four times as long as the section dealing with blessings. And we talked a little bit about that idea back when we were at the foot of Mount Sinai and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Why is why they stated in the negative, you know? And we talked a little bit about, excuse me, about that. Uh, I'm not going to comment further on it today, only just to point out that it is interesting. And number three, the third thing, is that the last half of the material on the curses of... Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29 um, is uh, a description of the fall of the nation of Israel complete with all of the gory details of the brutal conquering armies, the destruction of the land, and the carrying off into slavery of all the people of Israel, scattering them over the whole world. That's like where all the, consequen all the consequences, it's like, you know, if you persist. And, and we're talking here about what ends up being a thousand years of history, okay? So over and over and over again, they just, they would persist in, and God says, you keep persisting in doing evil. You keep persisting in worshiping other gods. This is where it's going to take you. 
And he wasn't speaking hypothetically. He was saying, this is what's going to happen to you. Spells it right out. All the gory details. They'll come in and they'll put the hooks in your mouth and they'll drag you all the way to the land that you, where you can't even tell what people are even saying because you've never even heard their language before and you're going to be completely decimated. He told them all, right up front. He tells them that. And what follows that is a covenant renewal ceremony. Remember, these people were not of responsible age at Mount Sinai. It's a new day. It's a new generation. And so God leads Moses through a, a renewing of the covenant. Chapter 29, verse 10 to 15 says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people. And that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. So there is a renewing with a new generation of, of the covenant. Um, and that's in chapter 29, verse 10 to 15. Now look at verse 16 through 19, because this is important too. You know the how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were, were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. You will take note, and we need to take note, that even one person turning away and doing, uh, being unfaithful is going to affect everybody else's life. That's a really important observation to make. It says, beware lest there be among you a root, a bitter, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who... When he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. Interesting. We also talked about that a little bit back a few weeks ago when we were camped at Mount Sinai. This whole idea that the whole community will suffer for the sin of one. And we, because we find that so profoundly unfair, so unjust. The thing is that God is, I, I, I think we need to just realize what God is saying here and what, why he would say that and why God does that. And the reason, I, I believe, is because that's the way it is. That's the reality of life. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. We don't live our lives as islands. We're not, we, don't, we don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'll just, I'll just do my thing and I'll take my chances and I'll, you know, I'll pay the piper if it comes to that. It doesn't work that way. 
That's not the way community works. Your children are affected by your life. And you might not think that's fair. And maybe it's not fair. But it is real. It is the way it really is. Your brother, your sister are affected by the way you live. For good or for evil. Either one. You can be a good influence or you can be a bad influence. But people will, will either be blessed or cursed by the way you and I live our lives. Can we get a hold of that? And you say, that's not fair. <laughs> Maybe it's not. But that's life if you're a community. You want to go and live as a hermit somewhere, you know, maybe. Maybe it won't work that way. But if you're part of a community, and they were a community. Remember, there are people now. There are people now. And we're a people. We're a people too. Remember those, um, those passages, I, 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 those recurring phrases, so that it may go well with you, so that you may live. Uh, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, it, it really comes to what I, I consider the crux of the whole uh, mm, I don't know if use the word sentiment. That's not strong enough a word. Um, it's like the, the underlying conviction of the book of Deuteronomy. See, I have set you before you today life and good death, and evil. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. That you and your offspring may live. God wants his people to live. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the prophet Ezekiel will later say. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants people to live. But you and I have a choice to make. Choose life that you, that you and your offspring may live. Verse 19 20, uh, says, and verse 20 says, Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Choose life. And this is pretty much how the book of Deuteronomy wraps up. It's with this whole, this whole hanging question. What are you going to do? Now, God has already told them what they're going to do. They are going to forsake him. It is going to come to that. I mean, like, you know, we're, we're in Deuteronomy, but you have read the rest of the story, right? They're going to forsake him. But God pleads with them here through, through, uh, through Moses. To choose life. Now, <laughs> let me just say that from that point on, uh, chapters 31 and 32, 33, 34, a few things happen. I'm just going to survey them really quick for you, and then we'll try to, to wrap some things up. But um, uh, Mo, uh, Moses has a commissioning service for Joshua, because he can't go in, right? He can't leave the people in. 
So God says, you take Joshua up and you commission him before all the people because he's going to take them in. And so Moses does that. Probably not an easy thing for Moses to do, but he did it. He commissioned Joshua. And, uh, and then he had this, this whole covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, let's see. Deuteronomy 31, 7 and 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord God has sworn to your fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or do not be dismayed. Which, if you read ahead in Joshua chapter 1, is pretty much what we read there too, right? You maybe recognize it because that's kind of the content of Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to be there next week with Doug. Um, then Moses entrusts all the word of God that he had written to the priests and the Levites to be kept by the Ark of the Covenant. That's in chapter 31, verses uh, 9 and verse 24 through 26, which is more uh, idea of leadership development there. Uh, then he wrote a country and western song. I'm, 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 jo you know, I'm joking about the Western part, but it was a country song. It was uh, certainly written in the wilderness. Um, but, it, but, it, but it's a song about jilted love. If you read it, and we, we won't read it this morning, but if you read Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's a song about God's love for Israel and how Israel spurned his love and, how, and broke his heart. And that's how it reads. Because remember, don't forget, this relationship that God has with Israel is like a marriage relationship. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand. If we don't understand that, we won't understand. We'll be reading along, we'll be, we'll be scandalized. It's like, this, this is crazy, you know? Well, it kind of is a little crazy because God is crazy in love. So it also tells us that God uses songs. God uses songs. Then Moses pronounced this blessing, which is a significant blessing on all 12 of the tribes. Well worth your time to read Deuteronomy chapter 33, which is all about Moses standing up. He he's already knows he can't go in. This is it. He's done. He's already commissioned Joshua. And he stands up and he pronounces a beautiful blessing 12 beautiful blessings on all 12 of the tribes. It's well worth your time to read. And then in chapter 34 is the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which records the death of Moses. He's been the leader of the people all this time. It's been 120 years since God preserved that little baby boy in, that, in the Nile River. 120 years, he preserved that little baby to lead Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and lead them to the promised land. 120 years have passed, and Moses is done. Let's just read it there. Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that 
is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, bur- and he buried him. Who buried him? It says God buried him. He buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there was not a, a, a risen, a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all uh, his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And thus ends the book of Deuteronomy. Now I want you to bear with me. I know, it's time. But I left something out. I left something very important out. And you may or may not have caught it. But I'll tell you what it is. God, when God sets out the blessings and the curses through Moses, when he covers the curses, the consequences, if you prefer the word consequences, for their disobedience, for their forsaking the Lord, and he lays that all out, and he says, you know, your enemies are going to come in, and they're going to take you, and they're going to scatter you all over all the earth. He didn't stop there. He goes on to tell them what happens next. And you can read it in Deuteronomy 30, and it says there that when all these things come upon you and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord has God, that God has driven you and return to the Lord your God. That word return is an important word. You'll see it in the prophets over and over again. Okay, When you return to the Lord or when you turn to the Lord, and you and your children, and obey the voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. That's an important word too, restoration. You will be restored and your fortunes and have mercy on us. And I don't have to tell you that mercy is an important biblical word. And then he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, the Lord your God will gather you, which is just a very poetic way of saying it does not matter where you are. If you will turn to the Lord and call upon him, he will show you his mercy and he will restore you. He will restore your soul, to use the words of King David in Psalm 23. And he goes on there to describe what that will be like. Now, you can read about that, and we will be talking about the return after Assyria and Babylon and the carrying away and the destruction of the temple and all of that. 
under Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? But that is only a partial fulfillment. When we come to the New Testament, and I'll try to make this as quick as I can so we can pray and leave. Well, pray and eat. But when we come to the New Testament, I've mentioned this a couple times, Jesus, all three times when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, when he spoke, spoke to the devil, he quoted the book of Deuteronomy all three times. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. And he has become the new Israel. He is the true servant of God. And listen to these words, okay, uh, from Jesus. He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's from John 3. Then over in John 5, he says this, you search the scriptures. This is Jesus from John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And then in verses 45 through 47, we have this continuation of those words. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If you do not believe his writings, how do you believe my words? See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these promises and predictions. He has eternal life to give. I'm going to ask you to stand and I know that that's a lot. I know that that's a lot to digest. I know that probably if I had stopped about 15 or 20 minutes ago, most of you would have probably felt pretty good about that. <laughs> uh, believe me, I, I get that. I have sat where you're sitting. But the Bible's not an easy book. It takes effort. It takes study. It takes concentration. It takes honesty. If you really want to hear what God's saying, if you really want to know what the Bible says, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament stories and those Old Testament accounts. And, and he stands before us today and he says, I have eternal life. And I am willing to give eternal life to all of those who come to me. But that begs the question, right? Will you come to me? And if you read through the Gospels, that's what he says over and over and over and over again.
Will you come to me? So I ask you today, in the name of Jesus, will you come to him that you might have life? That's the question. It's the most important question you will ever answer. Whether you live to be 60 or 6,000, there will never be a more important question than that. What's, um, what's your answer? Well, let's pray, and you can answer him, because ultimately it's him that's asking the question, not me. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask for each one here today, and I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would enlighten our understanding. Give us the ability to understand, Lord. Help our, our darkened minds to understand what your word says to us today and what you were saying, Lord Jesus, to our hearts today. I pray, Lord, uh, for any who may be here who've, who, who've heard that question but have not answered it. I pray, Lord, or else maybe there's people here, Lord, that have answered it, but they've answered it no, or, or maybe they've answered not yet. Maybe they want to kick against the pricks a lot longer, and maybe they want to bang their heads against the wall a lot longer and continue to hope that somehow life's going to turn out good even though they're on a path to destruction. And I pray for each one here today, Lord, that each man and each woman, each young person here today would examine their own hearts before you. And I just pray that in your great mercy, God, that you would draw lost sinners into a relationship with you today. I pray that the answer would be yes. I pray that people even right now would say in their hearts, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to come to you because I want what you have. I want to experience life. I want to experience forgiveness. I want to experience wholeness. I want to experience your goodness. I want to experience your blessing on my family. I want to experience your blessing on my life. I want to live. I don't want to die. I don't want to, to suffer the consequences of my sin and rebellion. I want to be forgiven and restored and, and to be blessed by you. So, Lord, I come to you, Lord Jesus, and I say, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes. Thank you taking my sin on yourself and giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'd love to talk to you more if you, if you don't have to rush off.